TBA 21 Academy Radio. You are listening to Magical Fresh and Salty Conversations, TBA 21 Academy's podcast series exploring ecological and magical perspectives on bodies of water. This series of conversations reflects on the anthropogenic transformations of marine ecosystems, leaning on the innovative trajectories of science, technology, and art. Through performance, expeditions, sound, film, and image making, the contributing artists engage with the underwater world in encounters with scientists and thinkers, proposing a world reimagined from within the waters. Whether in the fictional, scientific, or science fictional realm, an interspecies future lies ahead of us. Rhythmic Bodies, a walk through the performance expedition Breathings of the Moon. In this episode, we are joined by curator of performance and ecology, Lucia Petroiusti, who interviews the Starts Artists-in-Residence, Diego Delas and Leonor Serrano-Rivas, to discuss the performance expedition they developed during their residency in Venice. In his work, Mundus Subterraneus, published in 1665, the Jesuit scholar Athanasius Kircher devised a theory on the movement of water, claiming that water moves in an upward motion from the sea to the mountains. Although incorrect, this theory was the departing point for Diego Delas and Leonor Serrano Rivas to explore the notion of water moving upward, the Venetian aqua alta, and the magical rhythms of the lagoon from the perspective of the water itself. This episode focuses on the materiality of their artistic project and its various components. The tides of the Venice Lagoon and its aqua alta, the moon cycles, the rhythm of rowing, and the audience's heartbeat, all becoming magical strategies to help us become attuned to the voice of the water. Breathings of the Moon was a performance that took place at the TBA Academy headquarters in Venice back in July. Basically, it just condensed um, six months of research we did on the relationship between the city of Venice and the Lagoon system, along its relationship with the Mosè, which is a geoengineering structure that somehow prevents the waters to enter this tube. So the performance actually was a night performance and it was comprised of three elements. One was a boat with a rower and it was a San Pierrota, a Venetian boat. And the rower embodied the soundtrack because he was rowing in a very specific way, asked to mimic some tidal rhythms. Inside the boat, we had an instrument for imagination, which was somehow an instrument that we developed. And it was a hybrid between the periscope and the camera obscura. So, you would be inside this boat because we made a cover, a tendino, some sort of patchwork piece of clothing that 
and close that instrument for imagination. And it would consist of a night trip through a very silent canal in Venice, way out and in for 12 minutes, where the soundtrack is just the waters of the canals and the ruins. We would be looking inside that instrument for imagination and had inside a film that we shot in 16mm and HD in our studio in southern Spain. And that was a piece of fiction that somehow aimed at putting the water at the center of the narrative. The performance was structured in a certain way, so you will first encounter with the storyteller that leads four passengers into the boat, covered with a canopy. The canopy was produced and assembled specifically for the project, and we were using historical references of old paintings that they used the Camera Oscura to recreate the city of Venice uh, centuries ago. Once you entering to the boat that it was covered with that canopy inside there is a new instrument and that links us to the pre-enlightenment magic or the pre-scientific method. When you looked into this instrument and the rower started rowing, it looked as if you were indeed looking into the depths of the lagoon's water. The visuals that you were seeing were actually pre-recorded on our studio. We use a fish tank, so a microcosmos recreated with magnets. We wanted to recreate the um, micro to be able to affect the macro. So by recreating, by working on the fish tank scale, we believe that we were in fact building up a new future of the lagoon's waters. So I suppose what we could start with is just tell us a few words about what this Mose project is, because it's quite a large infrastructural project for the city of Venice, and how it situates itself within the, I suppose, what is a, a kind of public anxiety over the future of Venice in relation to climate change and climate breakdown? Actually, it was designed uh, in the 70s, but it came to conclusion or started uh, operating in the last couple of years. It exceeded many, many times the initial uh, budget. There's been many, many scandals. And what really interested us is that this sort of um, magic trick that stops the water, as in Moses, and breaks the waters apart. It really disrupted the way that the waters flow within the city, the speed of the water in the canal, the way the water moves in those canals. The ups and downs of those tides somehow stopped being what they were. And when the mosaic is up, uh, we found out that, for instance, it disrupts many, many things, but even the birds behave in a different way. So somehow it changes everything. At the same time, it's preventing the high tides to appear and enter the city as they used to. No? So it's, it's contradictory, and we didn't want it to enter into the scientific arena. 
for the geoengineering arena because we, we are new experts. So the very interesting bit about the Mosaic project is like was that it looked as a sort of science fiction element applied into the city. It's this uh, infrastructure that is actually split in the waters in a sort of Bible narrative. So we thought it's this kind of macro theory of the world and applied into a site. And that was the link that we established with uh, Kirker's underwater world. That's a very interesting thing about the Mosaic is that by placing that infrastructure at the gates of the Venetian Lagoon, all this tradition of um, data harvesting that they deployed for centuries is no longer working because they cannot measure anymore the, the movement of the water. This difference in, in height, the tides, because there's something that artificially is affecting that. So somehow they need to fictionalize what would it be if the museum wasn't there in order to deploy patterns or predictions. So it's strange how much uh, it, it, it's a game changer, the, the infrastructure. Which is also one of the tragic ironies of geoengineering projects, which is they're posited as solutions to uh, anthropogenic effects of climate breakdown, but in fact they are anthropogenic disruptions to like what would be the natural course of climate breakdown itself. So it's like patching a human problem with a human solution and escalating that. There's a correlative in medicine where you prescribe something that has a side effect and then you have to prescribe something else for the side effect, but that thing also has a side effect. And before you know it, there's a cascade of medicines that you have to take or a cascade of procedures that you have to have. So if we make a comparison between the body of a person and the body of the earth, of course, we end up with quite the same, almost like mythic drama. Maybe that's why uh, natural magic was so interesting for us and, and maybe for the open call, because right at the spot before the development of um, scientific method, they had the chance of looking at the world in a holistic way. So since they didn't know, they both the visible and the invisible was part of, of the same realm. Yeah, as above, so below being one of the sort of main tenets of alchemy. But to place all of this in context, you've mentioned Kircher, the scholar and polymath, and you've mentioned natural magic. I wonder whether you could place that research around him and the notion of natural magic in the historical context in which it developed, because we're talking about the sort of 17th century, aren't we? Yes, 16th, uh, 17th century. And um, so natural magic, our interest on that was that artists and uh, magicians were creating instruments, they called oh, apparatus, that they wanted to create an alternative for a never-seen-before view of the world. And only later, scientists and philosophers looked at those instruments to create the scientific method as we know it today. If we look back into the instruments, um, into those theories that have informed the scientific method, maybe we could rephrase and reframe and create new narratives that will uh, overpass the scientific method as we know it today. So by looking back into the instruments that have informed it, maybe we could rethink in new understandings of the world. That was the context of why we were looking into natural magic. Then Kierkegaard in particular had this uh, theory. So he wrote many, many books, but we were looking specifically into the Mundos Susterraneos, 
uh, which is the underwater walls. And he has this theory about the way that water was moving. So basically, he thought that water could move upwards from the sea into the mountains. Uh, so basically, it was moving from the sea up to the mountains, and then it was coming down through the rivers and back into the sea again. And this is not how the water moves. But nevertheless, he was creating so many instruments that tried to prove that water could move upwards. And this idea of moving upwards for us related to the high tides uh, in Venice. And that was our starting point to create this fiction or this experience. Also, the interesting thing about uh, Mundo Subterraneus and uh, where he has tried to explain the movement of the um, waters is that he thought there were two types of rivers. So the ones that we see, those are the visible ones, but there were also the invisible rivers that were connecting from the sea into up the mountains. And this idea of having invisible waters that we cannot see, we just have to imagine that they exist, and those uh, are the ones that bring the water up, is also something that informed this performance. So the relationship between the visible and the invisible as this kind of also connects to the idea of the tides and the invisible forces coming from the moon, but also other forces that they are not considered the weather or the rain uh, that also inform uh, some of the water movements. If we take like a poetic distance to the notion of invisible waters moving up, isn't that also a description of how evaporation from the seas moves the water up into the sky and then it falls on the mountain and flows down the river? I mean, what it sounds like is that within the precepts and treatises of natural magic, there is a kind of, I wouldn't say holding on, but just a kind of deployment of what is essentially like mythic or poetic tropes or like artistic or creative tropes in order to sense into the ungraspable complexity of the way that the planet works, no? But then somehow like myth and poetry are somewhat connected to the accurate. They're just prismatic rather than direct or like experience-based. Yeah, exactly. But also this um, somehow links to the research that we were doing on site on the idea of the tides, because, you know, tides is one of the main things that inform the high waters. We looked into, uh, or we talked to so many expertise uh, on site in Venice, 
but also one of our key mentors, let's say, was Francesco Vicentini, uh, that he kind of introduced us the idea of the invisible tides that were happening within the Venice Lagoon. And that was our link to the invisible movement of the high waters in relation to the Kirchers. He uh, introduced us to several essays, one of them being John Owen's Readings of the Moon. And actually that paper is uh, what gives the title to the performance. And she talks about the, the idea of uh, creating a tight clock, but not like a normal tight clock as we may know it today, but maybe a tight clock that relates to the human clock. And through that paper and those conversations, we started researching on the relationship with uh, human rhythms in relation to water rhythms. So again, a parallel made between kind of earth body and and human body, or or in a certain sense, an experience of one's own human body as a way of pre-perceiving or sensing into all different kinds of practices. That is to say that in order to kind of sense into the very large, you have to take a journey that is actually inter- to a certain extent internal and very intimate to you. And so one of the things that struck me about your project is how womb-like, in the sense of like entering a pregnant body almost, the structure of the boat also is, as though you had to take an inner journey in order to get in touch with something that, as you say, is like almost biblical in size. But in terms of biblical or mythological or kind of epic narratives, one of the things that I was also reminded of is how much the boat as an object figures in so many mythologies as a kind of transition between life and death, as the figure that accompanies you in a major transformation or in a major kind of from one phase to another, almost like saying from the liquid phase to the vapor, but also from life to death and so on. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about kind of this boat and to a certain extent, this figure of the rower, who is also your, I guess, guide into the underworld, the underworld of Venice. First of all, we we had the best rower. So we joined uh, several associations of rowers and people who looked after traditional boats, and one of them were the, the guys from Venice on, boat, on board. And we started having um, night journeys through the canal in order to try to which extent um, the boat as this um, sort of medium could be functioning as, as an ear, you know, since we wanted the water to be placed at the very center of the, of the narrative. And it was really amazing not to hear the, the waters at night just as the rower was rowing in a very specific way. In the performance, there were two ways of, of rowing, one way in and one way out, being different speed and different tempo. It was a, a San Pierrota. Those boats are the ones made to transport goods through the canal, no? Very flat boats, and they are perfect for resonating. And just by adding this very simple um, canopy on top, it made everything resound as if being inside a chest. The boat um, was transporting us into this sort of expedition into the unknown. It was placing us into an in-betweenness, but also it was constructed in a way that it was negating the um, landscape of Venice. We wanted the audience not to see the fachets of Venice, not to see the buildings and just focus on the sound. The boat works as a sort of a speaker 
of the tides of of the rower. And on the other hand, this rowing was creating a sound that we used as a storyline to create a fictional film, that that was what you were seeing when you looked into the um, periscopes that they were placed on the boat. And we work with the rower as a sort of choreography. The choreography was happening in two levels. One, the rower, so the way he was moving, but the way he was moving and he was rowing was informing the sound and therefore was informing the film. It's very interesting. You're describing almost a synesthetic situation in which a choreography becomes a way of experiencing sound and so on. But I was also quite struck by uh, your mentioning of the fact that the Tendina covers away from the audience what is essentially the mythology of Venice, right? The thing that you, when you go to Venice and you go, oh, Venice is as picturesque and as charming and as this and as that as you imagine it. But then actually in doing that and focusing on the kind of human and artistic element of Venice, it's also what leads to geoengineering projects that then disrupt maybe the water life or the wildlife of the area. So in a way, it's a kind of sensory deprivation that allows for you to somewhat gently kind of remove the human element and to confer some kind of greater agency or greater capacity for the water to express itself. So I wonder, maybe you could comment a little bit about this idea of how non-human or more than human elements kind of found agency through this dispositif, this apparatus. We had this question like underlying in our, in while we were making, while we were um, in Venice. And it was like, how do we abandon ourselves to a larger and longer space-time pattern rhythms of non-human processes, which operate at a very different scale, frequencies and intervals. So when you got into the boat and look into the periscope, what you saw was a recreation of a sort of lagoon or actually water rhythms. Those were made moving water through magnets, uh, recording fish tanks, uh, new water rhythms. They are not informed by human forces, but by all occult uh, forces, such as magnets. The thing with the city is that... Um... Its presence is so strong. It's crazy to get like completely blind out of all the reflections and all the beauty. We thought, well, the water and its movement and all the tides and all these sounds are equally part of the city. So perhaps to place that at the very center of the narration, we just need to hide ourselves from that 
view no, from that case. And the Tendino was just a magician's strategy. It was operating somehow like the magician's cloak. So we took all these Venetian paintings. Actually, they were made by using camera obscura. And at some point, they duplicated the site in order to make a, a reflective plane. And they use all these motifs that seem like water moving. So the Tendino somehow, it's just that. It's a patchwork made out of all those motifs made to recreate a reflected city, no? but it's a, a construction. It's completely fascinating, this question of the instrument, as you're talking about creating new images, creating new, to a certain extent, as a fiction, reproducing these lines that were themselves emerging out of a fiction to kind of mimic or give the impression of the real, or even the choreography of the rower being, to a certain extent, an acoustic fiction. And if I'm not mistaken, the rower was wearing a costume that was also made of the same motif. So the rower almost becoming part of this camera obscura that is also an acoustic chamber of a, of a musical instrument that is also an observation instrument, made me think about this question of the instrument. So you've already talked about the transformation of the notion of instrument within, say, natural magic into the instrument used for the scientific method. It occurs to me that this idea of like the scientific instrument as being a way of mediating less and having direct observation more of the world such as it is, is kind of almost like wanting to disavow or pretend that its past wasn't the one that it is, which is a much more around attuning oneself to the world rather than observing it. And I'm also reminded of a short essay from Walter Benjamin that um, the artists Ravitel Cohen and Tour Van Balen told me about once. It's a very small melancholic essay in which Benjamin thinks about the planetarium and the uh, instruments for observing the sky. And he says, the more we perfect these instruments for observing the sky, the more we lose the sense of the cosmic. So almost like the more we see, the less we sense. So I'm wondering whether you can comment a little bit about this question of the instrument and disavowed or secret beginnings of technology and science, which perhaps might reveal something about what technology and science actually is. When we were first confronted to the idea of Aqua Alta, we had this amazing expertise meeting and they were explaining everything about Aqua Alta and uh, this idea that Aqua Alta was actually informed by putting together four different types of uh, data. The way of interpreting, they have to kind of overlay those totally different uh, analyses and when they were overlaying them three or four, they could guess 
that act wild that was happening. But there was a bit of interpretation on those. And we were so interested in the idea of interpreting data, like interpreting scientific method. And none of the scientists that we talked to agreed on this statement, but we still believe on it. Um, there was a bit of imagination that had to be applied in order to interpret. That's why Demose failed uh, a few years ago, and, um, and then it got floated. Through these conversations, we were trying to understand how much of imagination was applied into the scientific method. They are seeing as the truth, as something that they can follow by heart, but actually there is, there is a scientist behind interpreting them and making decisions. Yes, so there is a little gap that links science with imagination. And that was the kind of the beginning of, of our course. And that was also something that really informed this performance. We, we had also these questions uh, of like, where is the voice of the water? Where is the voice of the lagoon within all this data? Because we had all these elements that kind of described, or they thought that they described the lagoon, but all of them were seen from the human perspective, but none of those were seen from the water perspective. So that's why we created fiction, like a fictional lagoon as a sort of revenge <laughs> where water was um, creating its own rhythms. I'm curious, anecdotally, did any of the experts that you consulted come and experience the piece on the boat? Only one. They, they were... <laughs> <laughs> that was a bit of a frustration because we had like these lovely um, conversations. They were so generous with us. And none of them actually and thought that the artistic approach to the Aqua Alta was knowledge. Actually, we thought in the same manner that um, back then in the 16th century, uh, artists were creating knowledge by the creation of apparatus and uh, instruments. We thought that uh, we were creating an alternative way of knowledge, or we wanted to do so, but none of them really thought what we were creating was useful for Aqualta as it is. Yeah. It's a huge problem that they have nowadays. I mean, I'm on your side. <laughs> I do think that art is knowledge. But I suppose one way of interpreting that, you know, this is science and that is not, this is knowledge and that is not, is, is a way of also protecting oneself from the risk of admitting that actually what one does is also imagination or what one does is also art or is also interpretive. It's very threatening for one particular method to be revealed to come too close to something else and be revealed to be something a little bit different or something indistinguishable from magic I suppose but that brings me to a kind of larger and to a certain extent unanswerable question or discussion I certainly don't have the answers and I don't think necessarily anyone does but you've talked about creating these new narratives I want to ask you about why why the need for new narratives. And I suppose in that question is also a question of what the role of the artistic process not necessarily is now, but could be through the creation of these new narratives in relation to aqua alta, climate breakdown, sensing the notion of the planet, sensing the complexity of what it is like to live on the planet. So we think, we don't have the answer either. It's more as a sort of uh, artistic statement we thought that if we created this new narrative on 
the Venice Lagoon, we weren't giving any new answers, but we could maybe change the gaze and create new questions that they may have not questioned themselves before, uh, as they were so obsessed with the human approach into the problematic. We only wanted to try to shift a little bit the gaze. Yeah, maybe that links again with uh, natural magic, right? They, when they were just using those instruments in order to widen the, the idea of, of, the, of what can be imagined, or the limits of the world via imagination. So we developed this project as perhaps just a methodology, no? this bed on imagination in order to challenge how the waters are, are looked at or how those um, rhythms are perceived, especially nowadays with the rise of geoengineering. We're a bit obsessed to which extent fiction can, can change your own position in, in this world. So speaking of uh, different practices, I know that you will be in conversations for more podcasts with Federico Campagna and John Tresh. I wanted to ask you about the sort of reasoning behind those two invitations. So we have followed Federico's practice for quite a while, and we were so interested in talking to him about the idea of fiction and imagination as an alternative way of knowing and knowledge, and also with John we got uh, very striked by his um, ideas and cosmologies. Actually, it was Federico who suggested bringing John into the conversation, and that was um, really um, amazing to have them in conversation. They were just enrolling in this beautiful journey from antiquity into the future. So it was mind-blowing. It's very interesting to talk about the notion of pre-nature uh, place in the natural magic period uh, in relation to post-nature, which is our moment today. So it was a beautiful journey.
Magical, Fresh, and Salty Conversations is produced by TBA 21 Academy with the support of STARTS, an initiative by the European Commission. Special thanks to our hosts and guests, Diego Delas, Lucia Pitrayusti, and Leonor Serrano-Rivas. Editor-at-Large, Maria Montero Sierra. Editing and sound design, Elena Caesar. Voiceover, Nathan Johnson. Music by Horizon Sound and underwater sound recordings of the Venetian Lagoon by Sonia Levy and Jez Riley French. Sounds from the performance expedition Breathings of the Moon by Diego Delas and Leonor Serrano-Rivas. Produced by Miriam Calabresa, Maria Montero Sierra, Katerina Rakuschek, and the artists. Hear more episodes at ocean-archive.org or subscribe with your podcast provider.